everyone. Liz Collin here. We are sharing some untold stories from the pandemic on this episode. Tough stories, heartbreaking stories about the toll of government shutdowns and the human cost that all happened away from our hospitals. A side of public health from the pandemic that you've likely never heard. A public health nurse working in the Twin Cities who walked away from the field after she says she felt like a fraud. Her name is Laura Van Leuven. Laura, thank you for being in studio with me to share your story. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. And your background is fascinating. You dedicated your whole life to healthcare abroad and in Minnesota and another state as well. But give us a little bit of a snapshot because this is the field you dreamed of going into when you graduated from nursing school. Yeah, um, when I graduated, I I pretty much wanted to be a public health nurse right away. Um, and I... Uh, did that um, a little bit overseas, doing some community health work, um, teaching classes, and then also visiting some families with children who were um, suffering from different things like malnutrition or other like medical things. So when I came back to Minnesota, I decided I wanted to continue doing public health, um, even though I had never done that before in the States. So And what exactly is your role then in public health? Because that can be pretty broad. Yeah. Um, So what I did, I worked with um, maternal and child health um, or family health. And so I used to go and visit in homes, um, the homes of pregnant moms or um, families with young children, babies or young children. And I did kind of a variety of things. Um, You know, I'd help with like breastfeeding support. Um, I really focused a lot on the attachment between the parent and child. It was really like holistic health approach. Um, And then also, you know, making sure they were educated about nutrition or um, childhood immunizations or just basic um, care of a child. Um, And then also connecting them with any community resources they might need. Most of the people I served were um, low income. So making sure they knew um, where their local food shelf was and how to access it, or maybe they wanted to go back to school. And so making sure they knew how to do that. Um, so really looking at the whole picture of what was going on with each family and trying to um, make sure that they got the, the support they needed, because we know that health is holistic. It's more than just being sick or not. Um, yeah. It's such an important job and, and one that we'll, we'll talk about in this conversation, how important we eventually find out, especially during the pandemic. But we're fast forwarding to that fateful, fateful month, March of 2020. So this time you're the mother of three little girls yourself. Um, just talk about your mindset at that time, those first couple of months when this all settles in, the uncertainty, um, not only for your family, but when it comes to your patients. Yeah. So actually, I have a girl and two twin boys. Okay. Um, <laughs> I know you're at your hands full either way. Yes. OK, gotcha. Yeah. Um, yeah. So when I um, when that happened, I mean, it was just really I think like everyone like I was very scared, very worried. Um, but I was I took um, a lot of comfort in the fact that we already knew at that point that covid was not really affecting young children, um, that it, there was this really obvious age gradient. Um, I guess like I was concerned that maybe I myself might 
get really sick and not be able to take care of my kids for um, a little while. And um, we didn't know about whether they could spread it to my parents if they were to take care of them or something. So there was that. But then also I was definitely concerned about um, my clients and not so much that they would get COVID again, because we knew about that age gradient and the, the folks that I was working with were mostly young, healthy people. Um, but what, what made them so vulnerable? Like I remember one mom was unable to find diapers for that week leading up to the shutdown because people had gone and stocked up mm. and she was waiting on her, um, benefits to kick in. Um, so she didn't have like extra money in the bank to just go and buy, you know, an extra package of diapers. Um, you know, so there was like that. And then I remember one family too, they didn't have groceries. They often didn't have groceries, um, like enough, you know, and they definitely relied on their snap and their, um, wick. And again, like I remember going into cub, um, that last day, I think it was like March 15th or something and trying to find, we had like a little bit of petty cash. And I just took that and tried to find just some basic things for her because I knew that the lockdown was mm -hmm. coming, um, and dropped it at her door. So yeah, I guess like those were kind of the more of the things that I was concerned about. Um, and I want to read an excerpt from an article that you submitted to Brownstone Institute, but it says when you're talking about that time, quote, for the first couple of years, it was almost exactly as I'd hoped talking about your role in the public health field. But when the pandemic hit, I saw a totally myopic focus on one respiratory illness and a near complete disregard for any other aspect of health. For the first time in my career, I was told to ignore suffering and forget best practices. Every day, I felt like a fraud. I know that took a lot of courage to write, but you're talking about that. What you what you meant by, by that statement? Um. Yeah, and so I feel like I kind of touched on our our best practice was to look at the whole person um, and to promote health um, from, you know, considering mental health and, you know, social health. What were their relationships like? You know, I remember being very concerned pre-pandemic about some of the families we'd see who suffered intense isolation. You know, maybe they were here without um, extended family or um, they didn't have a vehicle or um, you know, there were a number of reasons why some of these young moms would just be in an apartment by themselves and their baby for days and days. Um, and it was just always really concerning because we know that if mom's mental health isn't doing well, then there is like a direct correlation on how the baby will do, um, you know, in terms of whether they are developing and going to be you're ready for school, you know, things like that, um, if they're not around other other people. So that's what we were um, a lot of what we were trying to do was we was trying to help people get connected in community, not necessarily be their, you know, friend, but trying to help them to to find places where they could have like social interaction, make sure they could get to, um, you know, mental health, get the mental health support maybe they needed. So those are kind of those best practices that I was. And all of a sudden about. that mm -hmm. goes away in a second, but you're trying to push back as, as months go on. Hey, wait, this virus isn't deadly for kids. We know that they need school as a lifeline in some cases. And you're told what? 
Um, you know, I guess one, one of the things I remember in like April was just saying, what, what are the, what is our goal here? Like, wh- what are the, what are the markers for us as the nurse to be able to go back because we were asked to do virtual. So we weren't allowed to go into people's homes anymore. And so I said, at what point are we going to be allowed to go back into people's homes? And, um, it was just met with a lot of resistance. Um, and I would say, you know, some of my, one of my supervisors, you know, she was very much like, I know we want to do this, but we just can't right now. We don't feel comfortable with it. I'll ask around. And it was just a lot of like, well, no, not yet. Um, and nobody could ever give me like a hard answer on like, at what point can we, um, can we go back? You're expected to care for these vulnerable families from afar. Did it work? I mean, I would say, did it work? It's hard to like say that it did or didn't, but, um, it definitely was not the quality that of like services that I would say we were providing prior to COVID. Um, you know, I just, I never felt like I could really, um, like check in on a new, well, you know, if there was like a newborn, um, I couldn't do like an actual nursing assessment on that baby. You know, I could ask the mom a lot of questions. Um, but then I was just kind of saying, you know, you need to go to your doctor for this or that, um, without actually being able to lay eyes on, on the child. I was never able to, I don't feel like I was able to counsel people. Like I used to, you know, sometimes you walk into a house and you can just smell that there's smoke there. And so you can start talking about secondhand smoke and maybe ask if they're ready for, to learn, to, um, join a quit program and maybe get them connected, you know, but if I'm not walking in, they could just say, no, I don't. And then I have no idea. Or sometimes I would go in and I mean, I remember one time, you know, there was one family um, that was not from the U S and I walked into the house and you can just, there was definitely an odor and the dishes were piled up. And I asked the mom if she ever used her dishwasher and she was like, what is that? And, you know, I showed her, the dishwasher and I showed her how to use it um, because she just wasn't able to keep up with the dishes, of course. But there's things like that, you know, that like when you are present in someone's home, you can see that right away. Um, or I could see that one mom, she was leaving her milk out of the fridge. Um, and so I could just quick say, hey, tell me about this and mm. make sure she knew that like you really can't leave your milk outside of the fridge for an extended period of time on a hot day. You know, there's things like that you just don't see on the phone. These are conversations that you can't have because you don't know what you don't know. I didn't know. Yeah. And I certainly couldn't see a child to see if there was any concern for abuse or neglect or even just safety concerns. Like I I didn't, couldn't see their sleep area, you know, so I don't know whether there are lots of blankets there. I could tell the parents not to put blankets there um, in the crib, but I don't know if, you know, what, what was happening. Yeah. I, mm-hmm. 
Again, you're listening to a candid conversation with Laura Van Leuven. She is a former public health nurse who walked away recently after what she witnessed during the pandemic in the Twin Cities and in Minnesota. This is the time, though, I want to bring up where you lived um, while this is all playing out, because I think that plays an important part in your story, too. But a house near 34th and Chicago, of course, just a few blocks away from where George Floyd died at 38th and Chicago. So you're living through the riots also when, when that happens and the continued violence thereafter. But explain that moment in time in Minnesota, what that meant to your story and how you were seeing that play out in the workplace. It was a terrifying time. I remember like our neighbors having, you know, these gatherings and meetings and wondering like, well, who's staying, who's going, how are we going to protect our homes? Um, You know, our next door neighbor was a Somali refugee, an elderly man, probably 80. And, you know, at one point when we were getting ready to leave, he stopped my husband, you know, and he was just obviously terrified and crying. And he asked my husband to pray for him, you know, and I could just, I just felt like, oh, here's this man that came here looking for a stable, safe life after experiencing who knows what. And this is what he's going through. So then at work, um, we started having all these conversations about like, how did we feel about, about racism? And, um, you know, I, for me, it felt when I was just sharing just what I was literally going through, the fact that we didn't know if our house was going to be standing, you know, we thought it was possible it could be burned, the fact that we had to leave our home. And then when we did return, it was just constant gunfire. Um, There was a murder at the end of our block. Um, And there was a comment that like, you know, we don't want this to be about what what um, our staff is experiencing because they're making it more about themselves and not about, you know, the bigger issue, which is racism. And that really felt like, oh, so you don't want to hear, you know, this to me, um, they felt a little bit like separate things. Like there is this like issue of race and race relations between the community and the police. And then there is what like I was, you know, going through in the moment. Um, So it was just an interesting like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think you you summed it up. You wrote I was implementing policies that negatively affected the poor and racial minorities while our agency was declaring a declaring racism a public health crisis and receiving dollars to fight it. I was helping to trap people in isolation and despair. So it's kind of interesting that these storylines are happening at the same time. Yeah, so I mean, so we were trying to to help people you know, who historically have been marginalized or or like statistically do have like some of these higher risk factors in terms of like just income and health and um, different societal factors. Um, And yet it felt like, but we are taking away some of the lifelines that many people of, you know, many people of color really rely on. And especially, you know, folks who might not speak English as a first language, um, you know, taking away the public school system. I mean, most, at least from the immigrants that I have spoken to, they don't come here for themselves. They come here for their children and they come here so that their children can have a good education. Um, because that is like the great equalizer in our country, right? You know, um, to be able to have a solid education 
to be able to, even if your parents came from nothing, you know, that is like the American story is to be able to um, go out there and get a job and, you know, work hard in a field that maybe you, you love or you're, you're good at. Um, and I think that's why a lot of people come here. Um, and then to just take that away from them, it, it, I think it was devastating for a lot of communities who historically haven't, um, you know, who do experience poverty, different things. You have a couple examples. Uh, one that comes to mind is a, a mom who's so afraid of COVID that she won't even go in the grocery store. Um, she's driving around trying to get someone in the parking lot uh, to use her public assistance um, to, to pay for groceries. And another mom who you watch become hooked on drugs because she just can't handle the stress of having her children home. And there's really no outlet during the, mm-hmm. these times. Mm-hmm. Well, and, you know, the mom with five kids at the time, you know, a lot of grocery stores were saying, don't bring your kids, you know, come by yourself. We don't want you having a lot of people with you. I mean, that was really the messaging that was coming out of not just the stores, but also from, you know, from public health. And um, a lot of people just don't have if you have five children and now they're not in school. What are you supposed to do? You know, unless you have like a really solid extended family, but a lot of people don't, or, you know, like you said, they were just afraid that um, their elderly parents might get COVID. um, So they didn't want to have their kids around them. You said you understood the role of public health to give accurate information and to use facts and data to dispel fear. But you personally say that you're watching the Minnesota Department of Health, Governor Walls, working to try to fit their own narrative. You point to one example of trying to find a a patient. And this is something that I witnessed uh, in the newsroom where I was working before as well, but trying to find someone to paint a certain picture. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. It was, I think, um, the summer of 2020 that we got an email from our communications director that said, you know, a lot of young, healthy people aren't following our advice. They're getting together. Um, And so we really want to make sure we can highlight the importance of, you know, the young teens and, um, you know, college age kids. For, for them to socially distance and, and not get together in person. Um, <laughs> and so we want you guys to find a story, find somebody that you might know in the community who had a really bad case of COVID, um, who was young and healthy. Um, and they. So go find that person. We want, yeah, we want that story out there. Yeah. I don't know that they ever really did. Um, I never saw it come out. Um, but it was funny because I was contact tracing, you know, a day or two a week. And I was talking to a lot of people who had tested positive for COVID. And again, like some people were quite sick. Um, but most of the people that I was talking to that were younger, at least, um, they were not all that sick. And so it was just hard to find someone who, again, I don't think we ever, I don't think they ever did find anyone. I I know there are those people out there um, who have experienced really awful forms of COVID, but I think it's Mm -hmm. not as common um, as, you know, maybe some of the news wants you to think for some reason. So you're having this sort of internal struggle as this is all dragging on that the messaging seems to be off. Well, yeah, it was just odd because usually, you know, you look at like what are, are the, like, 
what is the data telling us? And it seemed pretty early on, like I said, that there was an obvious age stratification. And, you know, that's not to say that we don't know what's going on like long term, um, but we knew that um, the older you were, you know, older, over 65 or people who lived in nursing homes were definitely at higher risk for these bad outcomes. Um, and you're feeling guilty at this point for how long you're staying home. It's convenient. We're all like, okay, we can work from home. Um, you know, it's more comfortable. I can wear sweatpants, but as a public, uh, public health nurse, you're feeling guilty. Yeah. I mean, I, um, my clients were still going to work, the ones that still had jobs. You know, some people actually just lost their jobs, but a lot of them were still going. Um, Grocery stores, yep. restaurants, mm-hmm. packing school lunches, construction. Mm-hmm. Yep. They're going to work to yep. make it possible for people like us to stay Exactly. Home. Exactly. But yes, it was very convenient. And I was, like I said, I was pregnant. And so I didn't really want to be in like hot stinky apartments. (laughs) I liked being at home and, um, kind of being able to lay down when I needed to, or take a break. So all the while, it seems like this inner voice inside of you in a way is getting louder. Yeah, it definitely was. It was this feeling of like, well, and as a, as a, I, I had in my you know, former career had worked in an emergency department and just saw like, you know, I felt like, well, all my old coworkers, they're still out there working and maybe I should be too, but I'm now kind of inadvertently part of the laptop class and I didn't really mean to, to do that. Um, so it was like definitely a, a kind of a guilty feeling. Yeah. You're listening to Laura Van Leuven, a former public health nurse sharing a side of the pandemic she's brave enough to talk about. What are you telling people as an agency at that time when the vaccines first become available? Um. Yeah. So I remember when they first became available, it was very exciting. Um, so my son had just been born and I had pl- been planning on taking like kind of an extended maternity leave um, to be home with him. But that was right around the time the vaccines were were available and we were kind of short staffed. And so I called my boss and said, I'd love to come back and help be part of this. It's um, just so exciting. So I think in kind of late February, I started going a day or two a week to, to do these vaccine events. And, um, you know, even, you know, people would say, so am I going to get COVID now? And I remember saying, nope, you know, 95% effective at not getting sick. Um, you know, that's what we were telling people, um, because that's what we believed to be true and, um, just felt really exciting. Like we are going to get rid of this, um, awful illness, you know, And at the same time, the state starts offering this flurry of incentives and you're watching that the mandates play out as well. Yeah, it was. So it was really odd because then things started to kind of slow down, um, maybe sooner than we had anticipated. And so then you started to see these like there were rumors of like a vaccine passport system coming. And it was kind of like said, no, no, it's not true. But people wanted the card. They thought they were going to need it for for flying or something. Um, And then, yeah, the incentives, like, it seemed really strange, like, for something like Krispy Kreme um, (laughs) to be offering incentives for for people. Like, that's just an interesting public health strategy to, like, incentivize, you know, donuts, I guess. Um, So that started getting really weird, yeah. 
And and at first, there the demand is there. You talk about how December, January of last year, um, but a few months later, you're told by the state health department that hey, you can start opening a ten dose vial for one person, then go ahead waste the other nine doses. It's like nobody wants these things anymore. Well, yeah, and it was really weird because at the same time, I think India was having a huge surge, and they didn't have vaccine yet, and here we were, like, um, yeah, because. Earlier on, you know, February, March, we had to count out how many people were coming and how many vials we had and make sure we didn't waste any doses. Um, And so we had this really like intricate tracking system that took several people. And then they said, no, if one person walks in at the end of the day um, and they want a vaccine, go ahead and open up one of those 10 dose vials and give it to them and just waste the other nine, which like a week prior to that. No way. If somebody never come in, we'd something. try to maybe find somewhere else for them to go or get them an appointment for the next day or something like that. So, Did you feel that you were trying to sell this to people? A lot of people were there that didn't want to be vaccinated. Well, at first, no. I, did, I never felt like that because um, we just had our big events and people came. Um, people wanted to come. Um, and so that felt great. And it was just exciting that they wanted to be there. Um, you know, some people, they would ask about the side effects and um, they had questions and I was happy to sit with people and answer whatever questions I could. Um, occasionally, you know, I'd get somebody who said, actually, uh, I'm not ready to do this today. And then they and then they'd walk away and I just felt like, OK, that's fine. That's their choice. And they'll be back when they're ready. Um, but then um, when the mandate started coming, then it was a little bit different, you know. And that bothered you as well? Well, yeah, it bothered me. I mean, I'm I'm happy to give people vaccines or medications or treatments, you know, when they want that. Um, you know, sometimes if somebody is not in their right mind, as a nurse, you sometimes have to do, um, you know, give them treatments that maybe they aren't necessarily, like, aware of. But um, it, these people were, you know, they were not psychologically disturbed. They were not disoriented. Um, they were very much aware of their own bodies and they didn't want it. What was the final straw for you? I know you've since moved on. You didn't want to stay in the field anymore, but but talk about that. And what are you doing now? Um, I, I don't know if there was just one moment Um if there was like a one final straw, I think there, there were, um, it was just a lot. And and I just started really feeling like, um, I had just kind of come to the end of, of my time there. You know, I started feeling like it, it was just going in a very different direction. People that I was working with were okay with, with forcing, Um, we're okay with forcing the vaccine. I mean, literally a nurse said people need to be forced. Um, They were okay with, you know, trying to shame people for not following, you know, the distancing or lockdown. And, and I just didn't feel okay about that. Um, You know, then in my time there, we did start um, going back into people's homes and doing visits. And so that did feel really good um, to be able to do that. Um, but it just didn't, it felt like the damage had been done. Um, yeah. So now I'm back, um, spending more time at home with my family and then also doing work in a hospital again. So, so before we sign off, I was hoping you'd be able to read the last piece of your essay for us here. So tears streamed down my cheeks as I turned in my resignation letter 
in November 2021. It had been an honor to be invited to do the work that I did, but I felt that I no longer belonged, nor was I welcome in my workplace. As I cleared out my desk, I came across infographics on the importance of babies seeing faces, the dangers of too much screen time, and notes from trainings that describe the detrimental effects of social isolation. These were relics of a time when the well-being of children was the singular focus of my work, but that era in public health seemed to have passed. Laura Van Leuven, we thank you so much for the important work you're still doing and for having the courage to, to share your story. Do you think that that um, has kept other people from coming forward? There is still a, a fear of, of t- speaking the truth. Um, I, I think there is some of that. Um, I hope that people um, do find the courage um, just to talk about their different stories. I think that we all um, experience different things, um, you know, whether it was detrimental effects of lockdowns or mandates or um, or even just lack of, you know, treatment or or different things that, that they saw. Um, you know, I think that we need to share these stories so that when and if another virus starts to circulate, that we... We can just say we're not we're not going to do this again. Um, we can do better. We can do better. Yeah, we can do a lot better by our by our kids. So. Laura, thank you. A big thank you to my podcast producer Andy Schmidt. We'll be here again soon to keep meaningful Minnesota conversations going. Have someone you'd like us to chat with or a story you'd like to see? Email tips at alphanews.org. Sign up for our daily newsletter there too, and be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, follow on Spotify, or any other podcast platform. Share the podcast and give us a five star rating. Until next time.